When the sun rises, I wake up and chase my dreams. I won't regret when the sun sets, cause I live my life like I'm a beast. What up? You're listening to the Lifestyle Practice Podcast. All right. Welcome back, everyone, for another exciting episode today. I'm really excited for today. It's been a while since I've had a client on and been able to do kind of a back and forth interview. And so that's what we're doing today. I have a good friend and client, Dr. Daniel Baker. How are you doing today, Daniel? Hey, Derek. No, I'm doing pretty well. It's been a pretty busy day clinically, so I'm excited to just kind of relax and chat with you and, and just kind of talk about dentistry. Nice. Good deal. Okay. So as kind of an intro, Daniel and I have been working together in his first year of ownership and we just kind of recently wrapped things up. So Daniel, if you can kind of give a summary of simply what's gotten you to this point in your life leading up to purchasing your practice. It's a crazy thing. It has been an entire year. Some days it feels like we've been doing this for three or four years and other days it feels like it's my first time and just completely overwhelmed. Yeah. Um, but I am, I'm from Georgia originally. Go dogs. I hope this ages well. If this is posted after Georgia beats Clemson, <laughs> I went to Virginia Commonwealth university, which was obviously out of state for me. And I'd originally applied for the HPSP scholarship thinking that I could just apply out of state the military would pay for everything and we'd be good to go. Turns out I did not get the scholarship and I actually graduated with over $500,000 in student loans, which was a lot of fun. It's not that they didn't pay for your schooling, but it was that you thought you were going to go this route and you didn't end up getting the, the scholarship and going through that. Exactly. Yeah. I, <laughs> I talked to people who had gotten the scholarship in the past and they're like, oh yeah, we only had, I don't know, half the slots filled, just apply whenever. You just have to be a warm body and they will take you. I guess I wasn't warm enough because <laughs> <laughs> they, they said no. I went through all the physicals and did all this stuff with like the 18-year-old recruits. And yeah, but looking back at it, I mean, it worked out for the best. I am grateful that I have this opportunity from like a business perspective versus being in the military at this point in my career. It's interesting. My last two years of dental school, I applied for, gosh, I can't even remember what it's called now. It's like the National Health Service Corps or something like that for right. uh, a scholarship. And if I applied and got it the last two years, they would pay for my last two years of school and then I would owe them two years. And so I thought that would be an awesome way to kind of, come out of school, keep my debt low, and then be able to jump into ownership right after that. And I was so bummed when I didn't get the scholarship. <laughs> and obviously, like looking back now, I'm so glad that I didn't. But at the time, it was definitely a letdown for me. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, because it's, it's safe. It's like guaranteed money versus right. the risk of who knows what's going to happen. Yeah. So no, I, I get that. But after not getting that military scholarship, I was in my first year of dental school and just Kind of figuring out what I wanted to do, I realized very quickly, basically after our anatomy course, that I was not cut out to specialize. <laughs> and I realized as I learned more about ownership as a general dentist, 
that that was kind of something I would be interested in. I enjoyed doing a little bit of everything and just having, not just being pigeonholed into doing the same type of procedure every day. So I, I worked hard in my classes, but overall I kind of pushed clinical experience and shadowing other specialties that were also there at VCU and then really learning about business and leadership and especially communication. I was kind of the the guy in our practice management class that always listened to the dental podcast and paid attention, which is actually pretty shocking because the course was awful and I haven't really used much of any of it, but that's a different story. Yeah, I think they try in those courses, but for the most part, for most dental schools, I mean, we all kind of know that, uh, you know, a lot of the instructors are not necessarily people that have been super successful in business. I remember asking some of my instructors questions that, you know, I had read on Dental Town and talked to some dentists about <laughs> strategies and stuff. And I would go and ask them and be like, and they would just say, I mean, and it was in the practice management course and they still would give the answer like, oh no, you just put your head down. You play the game the way that they tell you to do it. And, you know, things will work out. And it was just like, it was so frustrating. But at the same time, I get it. You know, there's so much to cover in dental school. It's tough to be able to provide much of a curriculum that's going to help in any kind of business sense, especially when there's a lot of new grads now that are planning on just working at, uh, as an associate and not planning on getting into ownership. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And they're probably frustrated that they have to waste their time learning about business stuff that is never really relatable to them. Right. I get that. Our professor fell asleep every time he would bring in guest speakers and just sleep in the front row. So that was pretty great. <laughs> but no, I actually think that having those bad curriculums actually help people like us who have a similar mindset because it forces us to go to outside resources. And like you said, you had your, your dental town thread. Now with Facebook groups, you ask people out in the community and you really formulate these good questions. Whereas if somebody just told you step-by-step step what to do, you wouldn't really think for yourself. And I'm not convinced that I would have learned as much if I actually had a good class, as weird as that sounds. Yeah, yeah, that does make sense. So, but yeah, as, as I was getting closer to graduation, I kind of had a choice to make as far as where to go. I knew I wanted to do something that would get me to practice ownership. I was choosing between either being an associate for a few years and trying to buy a practice or going to a residency program or just trying to do what you did and just buying a practice right out of school. And personally, I am not cut out to do option number three. Kudos to you, but I think I would have had a meltdown if I was just buying a practice right out of school. People who do it, I love it. But I decided that doing a residency program was the way I wanted to go. I knew I'd have to defer my income for a while. I wouldn't have that year as an associate to kind of pick up from whatever office I was in, but I knew my speed was gonna increase. I could learn more services and provide different procedures in private practice. So I was really looking for a program that was gonna teach me things that were hard to learn in CE courses. Like, yeah, you can go and take a cosmetic dentistry course, or you can learn Invisalign or something like that. But I wanted to learn things that are kind of bad to practice on patients in private practice, 
mostly like surgery type things where you really want to have some backup there. Yeah. I ended up going to the VA in Birmingham, Alabama, which is actually an AGD that was run by a periodontist and it was pretty heavy on surgery and perio. There were several prosthodontists on staff who helped us did a lot of fixed and removable pros. There's a ton of need with veterans and it's pretty much you get to do whatever the patient needs. You don't have to worry about finances. So I got a lot of cool experiences. They didn't really have any peds or ortho or digital dentistry. It was, it was like doing dentistry in the eighties, which was fine. Yeah. But even though the program got cut short, I think it really helped me out. And when I stepped in day one in private practice, the dentistry part was just kind of in the back of my head because I already felt comfortable doing it, which I think was a huge advantage. Yeah. So cut short because of COVID, right? You were, you were finishing up spring 2020. 2020. That's right. So that November of 2019, I'd been kind of looking around at practices while I was in residency, nothing super serious because a, I had no money. I was a broke resident, but also I knew it was going to be a while before I could actually move into whatever practice I bought. So I, I did the the usual things. I was on Dental Town classifieds every day, sent out mailers to people in the area I wanted to settle down in, talked to local supplier reps and, and dentists, and nothing really jumped out at me as an opportunity worth pursuing. But then I came across this practice, the one where I'm currently at, it was actually on the Virginia Dental Association Classifieds, which lets you know how old school the seller must have been. Yeah. But yeah, it was exactly what I was looking for. And if I hadn't found that, I probably would have been comfortable just being an associate for a while after I finished residency and just been patient while I looked for a practice. Yeah, I think that point right there is really important to emphasize. And it's the fact that you you went forward having one plan that you hoped would work out. And I've talked about this before on the podcast with uh, have a plan that, you know, you want to work out and work as hard as possible to make it work, but have a backup too. And so, you know, you essentially did that by kind of knowing what you're looking for, but uh, then having a backup and being willing to, to work for a period of time while you move forward towards ownership. So I guess as you were looking, what type of practice were you, were you looking for? It would be great to find a practice that checks every single box that you have and you just walk in from day one, you don't have to change anything and you practice there your whole life and it's great. Most people aren't going to find that. I was looking for something that had at least four ops, preferably five or six, that was averaging about 500 to 700-ish in collections a year and something that referred most specialty procedures out and wasn't doing a bunch of big Invisalign cases or doing sedation. I want to make sure that I could replicate the dentistry and eventually grow it. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that's essentially the same criteria that I was looking for combined with some others. But I think that's really, it's aggressive, but safe because almost anyone is going to be able to come out as a relatively new dentist and be able to replicate that kind of production. And, you know, if they just maintain production and they're happy, then great. But if there's also a lot of opportunities to grow and keep more procedures in house, then that's awesome. Oh, for sure. And it it can be tempting when you see a practice that's like 
oh, they've been averaging 150 in collections, but they only work two days a week. And for some people, that's great. Maybe if they have built up uh, practices in the past and built value and really know how to bring in new patients. But I think as a new grad, when you think about your practice loan and your student loan debt, shooting for a little bit higher is is good from a cash flow perspective. So I agree yeah. that's it's a safe number. Yeah. I guess kind of walk us through a little bit as far as the the steps in looking at the practice and leading up to closing. So like I mentioned, I found that practice about November of my residency. So once I found it, I contacted the broker, asked for some more information and reached out and just tried to arrange a time to actually get to see the practice. The tricky part was I was still seeing patients full time in Birmingham and the practice practice was in Virginia. So I actually left clinic one Friday night, drove straight through the night, 11 hours to Virginia, and then met the practice owner and the broker that oh Saturday morning. Gosh. Yeah, I was, I probably had bags under my eyes. <laughs> I changed in a Hardee's parking lot. It was great. You're Super nuts. professional. <laughs> but yeah, I showed up and the owner, older dentist, he's in his seventies, just ready to retire. Had been there 40 years, built the practice from the ground up, really nice guy. And the practice that we came across was pretty much everything I was looking for. Six ops, they've been doing 600,000 in a small town, about 40 minutes outside of a major-ish metro. So my wife and I wanted to live in Richmond, so I wanted to kind of commute out to a rural area and practice, which was great for us. And he also had the real estate for sale. So... He referred most everything out, except he did a few extractions, a ton of four plus surface pin retained amalgams, very little perio. It was a potential gold mine as far as treatment that was left to do. Yeah. On um, the downside, his paper charts had film x-rays, carpet in the operatories and textured wallpaper, but all of that could be changed. And probably the biggest red flag was that there was a very high employee salary overhead, like 50 plus percent of collections was just employee salary. Yeah. Yeah. But took a gamble and fortunately it paid off, but it was, (laughs) I went back and forth a lot on that number. Yeah, that is a tough one. I mean, it is pretty typical in a purchase, especially with a practice like this, that's kind of underproducing to see the percentage of collections that's going to payroll. It's normal to see that higher, which, you know, 30, maybe even 40%. But uh, yeah, 50% is definitely up there that really, for the most part, I would say avoid those practices unless you see that there is a huge potential to really go in and increase things. For sure. So I won't bore you with all the acquisition details because, you know, there are a ton of steps involved, but let's just say as I was acquiring this COVID hit and all of a sudden banks didn't want to lend to a resident with no proof of production (laughs) who had no money. So I'm, I'm very fortunate that we're able to get the deal done, but it was touch and go there for a while. Yeah. Yeah. We closed... August of 2020. And then you and I started working together actually a month before that. And I feel like that month leading up to it was really beneficial because you helped me get my vision in place, uh, make sure I had my mindset 
where it was supposed to be being able to go through TLP Academy and actually learn what a successful dental practice looks like was super helpful. Basically, I just knew where I wanted to be as far as family life goes, what I wanted to achieve financially, and then you kind of helped me fill in all those pieces. Yeah, okay. So that's a good summary. So, I mean, we haven't even talked about anything in ownership, but you've already shared a a lot of the steps that I think are really key and the thought that went into everything just leading up to the point of closing on the practice. I get questions all the time asking about how to prepare for ownership. And at the end of the day, you're never going to be completely ready. But you've laid out a great way that you prepared for ownership at an aggressive rate. So a few things just to, to hit on. You thought about your student debt and you, you, you had a plan. You knew pretty early on that you didn't want to specialize. And so you spent a good time, good deal of time studying business. You weren't just looking for any practice. You had specific criteria. And then uh, you took advantage and hired someone like, like me from the very beginning. Obviously, this is our podcast. And so a, a plug for us. But really, the point is that you sought out help and someone that you believed could really help you to get where you wanted to be very, very quickly. So, you know, all of those points are really impressive things. And I think if you found anyone else that had taken those same steps, you're pretty likely to see someone that's going to be successful just because that takes a, a good deal of work and, and preparation. So, any other thoughts off the top of your head that you would share with others that are considering ownership right now? Well, first off, thank you, Derek. I I don't want people to think that I am someone who is this crazy outlier. Like I'm middle of my class. This <laughs> this is just kind of going step by step, and it, it's pretty uncharacteristic of me to take this gamble. But when you know you want something so badly, it's worth going for. And in going back to what you were talking about with hiring someone to be helpful. Sorry, let me stop you real quick. I think what you just said is a really good point. And I think that's a lot of times what we want to stress at TLP that, I mean, sure, you can look at people that are outliers, but we're trying to paint a picture. We're trying to make it step by step to realize that there is a science, that there is a method to go through this where you can be relatively average in, you know, testing or, or, you know, whatever. But if you put in the effort, you can make some really big changes and you can be successful. So sorry for interrupting, but I just felt like that's important to say that it's great that you recognize that. And if anything, it should tell everybody else out there, hey, just put in the time and have a plan and be intentional about this and don't let yourself just glide along on cruise control going whatever <laughs> pace everyone else is around you. No, and that's so easy to do, especially in dental school. You have all these classes, you're overwhelmed with tests and requirements. You just want to get to your next step and you kind of keep your head down and don't look up. But I mean, from a financial perspective, just numbers are real. I knew how much I owed in student loans. I knew how much an average associate made coming right out of school or even right out of an AGD and my debt to income ratio would be way off. And I just realized those numbers didn't add up for the lifestyle that I felt that I had sacrificed for and really wanted for myself and my family. 
ownership was really the only way to get there. And it just happened to line up with what I was passionate about. Yeah, that's great. But for people who are thinking about ownership, maybe don't know if it's right for them or if it's the right time, I'll just be honest, it's never going to be the perfect time to go into ownership. There's always going to be something in your way. There's going to be obstacles. I knew for myself personally, the biggest obstacle would actually be finding a comfortable associateship that paid pretty well, that provided everything I need from like a, a challenging clinical situation, but not too hard because when I'm comfortable, it's a lot harder to change versus coming right out of a residency program. My wife and I were used to living well within our means. There wasn't really a drop in our lifestyle the first few months as a owner because we're used to being pretty broke. Yeah. So I don't know. I think times of change are really good times to be uncomfortable and it it just happened to work out. Yeah. That's interesting thought. So, but talking about working with a coach, whether it's I'm biased because I had a great experience with you, Derek. I kind of looked at this from, again, a financial perspective, the price that it would cost me to do this program. What would I have to gain from it to make it worthwhile? And for me, if it helped me to do, to show patients that they would benefit from two more crowns a month, well, then the program paid for itself and I would be well ahead. And for me, it was absolute no brainer. So I think it was one of the best decisions I made this first year of, of being an owner. So thank you, Derek. Yeah, no, thank Thank you. It, it is cool. And it's hard because, you know, cost is always a big question, but you know, for the people that really apply themselves, man, the value is just incredible. And I've experienced it on both sides as a, as a client and as a coach. So for sure. Okay. Well, let's, let's kind of get into things a little bit. What did you expect things to be like as an owner and how did it turn out compared to what your expectations were? Uh, well, some people say that the best part of being a business owner is that you get to choose which a hundred hours of the week you work. (laughs) So for the first few months, that was definitely the case. I knew I was going to work hard and I knew it was going to be out of my comfort zone. I honestly had no idea what to expect when it came to the business side. I don't have anyone in my family who is a dentist or has ever worked for a dentist. I wasn't an associate, so I had no idea what a successful practice actually looked like, which was probably a little irresponsible, but (laughs) maybe it's a fresh slate. I also realized that working with people all the time is super hard. And I like people, don't get me wrong, but I am, I'm an extroverted introvert. I need to recharge, but can kind of turn it on when I need to. But being an owner, I felt like I was always having to be on with patients and with my team members and just having to be this bubbly, cheerful, outgoing personality, which is great in moderation. And over time, it's gotten a little bit easier. It's emotionally exhausting at times. Yeah. I think almost all dentist owners can relate to those things that you just said. Yeah. With you saying that you didn't know what a successful practice looked like day in, day out, I mean, that is a good point, but on the flip side of the coin, sometimes there's dentists that a decent amount of time in an office that they may have liked, but it really wasn't run real efficiently. So 
it can almost be harder to undo some of those improper systems or to reverse some of those thought processes. So, you know, sometimes it could be preferable to, to start from scratch, not knowing exactly what things should look like and kind of work up to it. That's a good point. Okay. So let's talk about your goals going into the practice. The, the practice had done around 600,000, if I remember. And I think that's, I think that's what you just said. Your goal in your first year was to hit a million, which is pretty impressive and aggressive. That's an increase of two thirds, like 67% in one year. Yeah. So you're, you're spot on. It was, it was doing about 600,000 COVID hit. And in 2020, when I started in August, we were on pace to do about 400,000, I want to say. So I'd heard your story multiple times about paying off all your student loans one year. I knew with my number that probably wasn't realistic, but no, no, I just kind of figured 600 to a million was a good round number. It was exciting and just kind of set this arbitrary goal of getting to a million in collections and dropping the overhead. When I took over, it was 74%. I just want to get it under 65% within the first 12 months. I feel like that was a pretty good goal. Yeah. Didn't really do a ton of research into setting those. It just, it felt good. Yeah. So got in day one, thought everything was great. First month collections kind of dropped a little bit. I was like, okay, okay. Month two, it's going to get better. At the end of December of 2020, I met with my CPA and he was like, um, I mean, things are, things are okay, but your overhead's at 98% and you're on track to hit about 600,000. I was like, man, here I was thinking I was this hot shot coming in. I was going to change everything and things just kept breaking. My overhead kept climbing with all that stuff. I'll be honest. It was pretty discouraging after that call with my CPA. Yeah. But then January, we'd been working on some things and pulling some levers and you'd kind of talk me through some of the big, big items that were really going to start creating some momentum. And then I am very happy to say that with your help, we kind of turned everything around and we reached our 1 million in collections goal seven days before my one year anniversary, which is awesome. Yeah. So yeah, now... Got overhead down from 74%. Now we average about 52%. And we're on track to hit a little over 1.2 million for, for 2021. Man, dude, this is, <laughs> that, there's so many things of what you said that are so awesome. First is just like how fun it is to look back at the end of, you know, that 12 month period. There's so many times in the beginning where it's just, is, is so challenging and overwhelming. It's kind of like, you know, on the wheel of fortune, they go to turn the wheel. And in the beginning, it's like such a heavy, big wheel and it's so slow. But then once it gets going, you know, and really starts to get some momentum, then you really start to make some progress. I think the the key, I've said this to a lot of new owners, is just kind of knowing that that's what it's going to be like in the beginning. It doesn't make it easy. I mean, it, it doesn't matter like, how many times you hear other people that have struggled and you listen to my story of me crying before going to work the three months, <laughs> my first three months and losing 20 pounds. Cause I just never felt like eating. 
you hear these stories and you know it, but then going into it, for some reason, we have higher expectations. But the key here is that you kept pushing and then, uh, gosh, you took a practice that averaged 600000 a year, bought it in the middle of COVID and, and freaking turned it around. You know, if, if even if we don't take COVID into consideration, like you said, they were only on track to, to hit 400000 But if we just only look at historical numbers, if we just look at the take-home income from this practice, what they were doing historically, 600000 at 74% overhead is is roughly, let's see, is, so that would be 156,000 take home. Not real great. I mean, definitely not what you would hope for as an owner. In your first year, took it to over 1 million at 52% overhead, which would bring your take home to 480,000. So you, you tripled the take home of this practice in your first year in the middle of COVID. So man, what a, what an inspiration. Hey, I'm, I'm just lucky to be here. I, it's, it's been great, but I I'm very grateful. Yeah. It's really cool. So let's, let's change gears a little bit. What, uh, talk, let's talk about some of those hardships. What were some of the hardest things about your first year in ownership? Man, that's a, that is a humbling question. Cause it can be really easy to look at the milestones and be like, you forget how hard things were as you were in the middle of them. So it's easy to focus on the numbers and, and all those highlights, but you don't think about the day to day and things that went wrong. Like you were talking about with your first three months, my first five months, they were a grind. Like I remember on our calls, <laughs> I would be like, Hey, so when's it going to get better? And you're like, just, just keep doing it. Keep your head down. It's going to happen. Yes. These first few times, it feels like you're not really making any progress, but one day you're going to look up and it's going to hit you all of a sudden. I was like, man, this guy is just making stuff up. And <laughs> then it was true. <laughs> but yeah, those the first five months, I'd wake up at 4.30. I'd get home around 8 at night. It definitely put a strain on my personal relationships, my health. I wasn't exercising. I gained weight. Kind of envious that you lost weight, just, just <laughs> saying. But you probably lost muscle. <laughs> that Fair makes enough. you feel better. There you go. <laughs> No, all, all I thought about was the practice. I just thought about how much I had to get done, how much I was putting into it and not getting out of it. And it was just discouraging. It was just on my mind all the time. But fortunately, you'd been through it before. I was able to kind of talk things through and you helped me focus on what these top priorities were and figure out what levers we're going to pull and what order we're going to do them in to see the most change. Because I'll be honest, without you, I probably would have picked something and worked on it for a couple weeks and then sporadically pick something else and just kind of bounce between low yield things that were comfortable for me because I'm good at them and ignored the things that truly make a change that are a little bit harder. It was also kind of hard with, with COVID stuff. I hadn't picked up a handpiece from... March until about August. So I was a little rusty, but, but that's, that's about it. Yeah. I, I can totally relate to that because I remember 
my first year, like I felt that was the biggest thing that I wanted from a coach was just like, dude, there's, there's like a hundred things on my list. I can't do all of them. Help me decide where to put my time and energy. And it's, uh, it can be really tough when you're in the battle zone day in, day out to really kind of see the big picture. And that is a huge benefit of, of a coach, of someone that's been there and done it before and can say, let's keep pushing in this direction. So that's, that's really cool that you can kind of look back in, in hindsight and, and see that same thing. No, for sure. It's, it's a big benefit and just you've experienced, I think every owner experiences it. You wear a lot of hats and it's hard to really get a sense of what that feels like until you've actually done it. Cause like you, you are the CEO, your HR, your maintenance, your sales, marketing, finance, plus you see patients all the time. So like this past month, yes, things have been great from the dentistry standpoint, but I've had to replace an AC unit. I had a leak in my roof I had to fix. My compressor room was leaking. We had a plumbing company come dig up our yard because our irrigation system was flooding out into the road. So it's like, there's always something happening and you never really feel caught up. Yeah. I don't want to make it seem like it's horrible, <laughs> but definitely I'd say the hardest parts involve people. The people that I inherited as part of my team, they're all females. They were all pretty much the same age as my mom, which was kind of awkward coming in when they're used to the 70 something year old dentist. And I'm this young blood who comes in and now I'm their boss and I'm supposed to tell them what to do. Yeah. And earn their trust. <laughs> yeah, totally. But to avoid that, I tried to limit any big changes in the beginning because I knew if I just came in there and started swinging and showing like what I'm supposed to or telling them what they're supposed to do, they're not going to buy into my vision because they don't trust me yet. So I, I slowly had to build their trust and get them on board before I even thought about changing things, even if they were small. Yeah. All of those are, are great points. I think, you know, pretty much every acquisition has to redirect the, the ship in some sort of a way or get the buy-in from the staff, you know, whether that means you're changing systems or, or habits or letting go some employees, you know, whatever it is. I wanted you to talk about an experience. I remember you had a, a specific employee that gave you quite a bit of challenges in the beginning, and it was something that we talked about quite a bit. Can you kind of share your experience here? Sure. <laughs> You're right. That was pretty much our main conversation for the first five months. She was a longest tenured employee there, front desk, and everyone else was friendly. They were, they bought in pretty quickly. She was the complete opposite of everyone else there. Whereas people were positive and cheerful. She was grumpy and an Eeyore. And that's not really what you want from someone who works at the front desk and is the face of your practice. But she had been there for 17 years. Recently, before I took over, she had been put in charge of all the insurance. Unfortunately, she didn't really understand insurance or know what she was doing, but she had just assumed those roles. And Oh no, we just kind of butted heads from the beginning and I am not a conflict loving person. 
And that was hard. I, I guess I came in and kind of assumed that people would like me and she just didn't like anybody. So won't go into all the details. I, I don't want this to be a gripe session, but basically she was not a good fit long-term for what I wanted at the office. I wanted someone who was going to be kind to patients, to be understanding and empathetic and to make patients feel heard and respected when they came in and when they called. I wanted someone who actually knew how to do the job that they were hired for in a way that didn't make me have to take on and go behind them and fix things. Cause I'll be honest, I knew nothing about insurance and had to kind of learn it on the fly. And I was hoping I could lean on her for, for those first few weeks and no, it was the complete opposite. So you and I talked and basically she, we knew she wasn't a good fit long-term. It was more a matter of how long do I need to keep her on the team for a smooth transition versus having this difficult conversation and then be scrambling. And yeah. I think it's different for, for every situation, but it turns out that I had brought someone in uh, about six months in to help her out in the front. And I, I guess she saw the writing on the wall and two weeks before I was going to let her go, she actually handed in her resignation. Yeah. But I know <laughs> when all of that happened, it was like night and day. The following day, I was so excited to wake up and go to the practice. I loved my job again because it'd been kind of a grind having to deal with that all the time. And I, I didn't realize it until I felt that sense of relief when I knew she wasn't going to be part of my vision moving forward. And I wish I had done it sooner. That's, that's something that she kind of, she made the choice easy for me. And I think I would have learned a lot from having to do it myself. Not that I regret the way it turned out, but I know I think we can be held hostage as new owners sometimes, and we need to understand when it's time to really fight for the culture of, of the practice. Yeah, I think that was, I mean, that, that definitely happens where you have someone with a front desk where that's a tough position. You know, if you come in and you've got to let an employee go, if it's an assistant or a hygienist, a lot of times, you know, you can train those employees. You understand those things relatively well, but with the front desk, that's, that's tough. There's definitely times where we have to look at it and say, okay, what is the rate limiting step? And it, it very well may make sense, even though we know that we need to get rid of this employee, it may make sense to postpone that for a period of time until that is the highest concern on our list. You tried to make it really amicable, right? I think you had a funny story with that. <laughs> oh, yeah. We, <laughs> it was her last day and we basically decided, hey, we're going to end things on a nice note. She'd been there forever. Closed the clinic for two hours during lunch. I made a reservation at a pretty nice Italian restaurant and all the other team members had written her cards and gotten her presents and everything. So that day of when she got there, she was kind of grumpy in the morning as, as it usually went, but I don't know. She was just kind of off and she acted pretty weird and was kind of mean to patients and to the other employees. And like an hour, hour, two hours before lunch, decided that she didn't want to go anymore. And I, <laughs> I was not happy. And I just decided, you know what, why am I going to put up with this 
she's taken so much energy from the team and we've all kind of bent over backwards to try and make her happy and it hasn't worked. Why am I going to ruin everybody's experience just for her? So I told her, you know what? That's great. You don't have to go to lunch. I took all the other employees and we went to the Italian restaurant and had an incredible lunch and we just left her at the practice eating lunch by herself. So <laughs> it was one of the best lunches we've had and I don't know, I could really feel that the other employees felt that I had their backs and it was kind of a really pivotal moment where the team bonded even more. And now looking back on it, I'm, I'm really grateful that that's the way it worked out. Yeah. I still am kind of in disbelief. Like, I mean, I was when you first told me that, like you're, you're having like this celebration lunch to make it, to have an amicable separation and to say, we appreciate you see you later, take care. And then she's like, oh, I actually don't want to be part of that. <laughs> it's yeah. Unbelievable. But hey, it worked out. Let's start wrapping up. There's two last questions that I wanted to ask you. One is just how you grew as, as a leader. And then the other is, you know, if you have any thoughts looking back as far as finding a balance with things, as far as the practice, personal life, stress and stuff like that. So the first one with leadership, you know, almost, I would say 90% of us as dentists, when we buy a practice and become business owners, we really don't have much experience in, in leadership. So it's, it's very new and it can be very intimidating. So tell me a little bit about yourself as far as background in leadership and how you grew as a leader during your first year. Yeah, I wish I could say that I'd come from a Fortune 500 company and I knew everything about leadership, but that's not the case. If um, you did, you probably wouldn't be a dentist. <laughs> that's fair. Oh, okay. But no, like I, I worked all through high school, all through college, and I was always an employee and they weren't really jobs where I had a great leadership role model or mentor. So when I would read leadership books or something like that, I would say, Oh, I mean, sure. That makes sense. Obviously if, if we are reading it, it must be true. And I thought it would be super easy to put into practice and it <laughs> ends up that it's not the case. It's a lot harder when you have individuals and different personalities and specific situations come up. So as a person, and I guess my leadership style, I lean more towards being a peacemaker and avoiding conflict, which can be good in some situations, but you got to have conflict and have difficult conversations to be successful in any relationship. So I really like Brene Brown and she has a line that I kind of borrowed from her and she says, clear is kind. And that's kind of been my mantra as I go through because I always want people to know where they stand. And I've been trying to be really not even good, just attempting to give regular feedback. But my problem is I try and be a little too nice. I think when I have bad news or when I tell people even things that they're, that they need to hear and it actually ends up confusing them and doesn't really lead them to change. So I think this past year has kind of taught me, hey, you need to say things as a leader, as an owner that are going to move this business forward. I'm not saying you have to step on people's toes or hurt their feelings, but you have to be willing to say things, even if it's not comfortable for you. Great 
Great point. You know, you talk about Brene Brown. That it makes me think of uh, Ray Dalio's book uh, Principles. He talks about his hedge fund managing his big hedge fund and creating an idea meritocracy, meaning that he wanted to create an environment where everyone could completely speak their mind and be honest and giving feedback to each other, even when it's difficult to hear. And and I totally agree. I think that's something that we, as business owners, we really need to step up and, and do. It can be challenging, but the results of it can really go a long way. Oh, I agree. Wasn't he the one who, he had like baseball cards of people's stats, what they were good at at work? I don't remember. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, I gotta gotta refresh my... Ray Dalio. The big thing that pops out to me is that with an idea meritocracy is like when people would give a presentation or would talk about things, he would allow everyone listening to give immediate feedback and to say if they agreed, if they disagreed, if they thought the presentation was weak in any sort of way. And it made it for certain employees, they didn't last long because, you know, you got to have thick skin. But for those that were able to, to make it and be able to accept that feedback and also give it to others, it, it really is one thing that he feels made his company really perform at, at a high level was just, just because of that. Well, that's a good point, especially when you're talking about being an owner you are kind of by yourself at the top of the totem pole and it can be really intimidating for people to even critique you. So just letting people know that you are open to feedback and demonstrating ways that you receive feedback. Yeah, um, totally. It's helpful. Okay. So last question, any thoughts as far as, you know, all these challenges and successes in your first year, what was it like with, with personal life, with balance, with, with everything? Any thoughts or feedback or advice to others? I would say, to be honest, we, I work four days a week seeing patients. Friday was kind of my admin day starting out. I, I made sure to never work Saturdays or Sundays as far as going into the office. Now, in those days during the week, I worked a lot more than I should have. In the beginning, I had to work them to kind of stay afloat. Things were always wrong. I had to implement systems and all those things. But then it kind of got to a point where it almost became like a badge of honor. Like our society, people would ask me, hey, how's the practice going? I'd be like, oh, man, I'm working 14-hour days. And yes, it was hard, but it kind of made me feel good. It's like people would see my hustle and the grind and all the work I was putting into it. And then... I talk to you and you're like, Daniel, what's the name of this company? The lifestyle practice. You have the practice, but where's your lifestyle? And you kind of help me realize that that's not the end goal and that's not where my value comes from. So over the past few months, I've gotten a lot better at working less. I go in maybe one Friday a month if I have to do something. I spend more time with my wife and start getting a monthly massage yeah it's awesome so overall i work less i stress less and our collections have still been going up so i think you're on to something that's yeah thanks for sharing that and it's cool i mean that was that was definitely my experience too and i think 
a lot of us as we continue to grow and we have to kind of learn. I mean, that's one thing that's challenging is that in the beginning, you almost have to micromanage a little bit to learn and to understand all the systems and to get to the point where things are running really well. And so it can be hard to back off and to let go of the reins a little bit. But I mean, that is that is exactly what we need to do over time when we're trying to create our lifestyle practice. So yeah, that's great. Great thoughts. Well, thank you, Daniel, for coming on and sharing your experience. It was a total pleasure working together in your first year. And I know that we're still going to try and kind of move to quarterly now. And so I'm really excited to kind of keep tabs on the practice and, and your goals and continue working through things. So appreciate your time. Take care. And who knows, maybe, maybe in another year or so, we'll do another podcast and talk about how you quadrupled your net income or something like that. (laughs) Hey, I I would love to have that conversation, but (laughs) thanks so much, Derek. It's been a blast. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Take care. And we will talk to you next time. As always, feel free to reach out to any of us, Derek, Steve, or Justin at the lifestylepractice.com. Take care. We'll see you. Break a sweat, cause I live my life like it's all I can